we know that Jesus uh, is one day coming back to finish what he started. And in the kind of in-between time of the first Christmas and when Jesus comes back again, we are called to live in solidarity with Jesus and Jesus' mission in the world. Uh, And that means allowing our lives to kind of be adjusted and conform to the standards of Jesus' community and of Jesus' life. Uh, It means adopting Jesus' value. It means um, loving the things that he loves. It means um, engaging with his mission. And that's a big job. That's That's a big deal. Um, and so today, what I want to kind of do with, with us all together is not uh, an expository sermon um, where I kind of unpack all the nitty-gritty of a passage. I'm not going to do that today. This is what I'm calling an exploratory sermon, okay, where we're going to explore together um, a little piece of what it means to live in solidarity with Jesus through the passage that, that Brenda has just, um, has just read for us. But in order to do that, I want to remind you of something that some of you guys have seen before, um, and some of you, it might be the first time you've kind of heard me refer to this, Uh, and I'm going to try and demonstrate it a little, but I'm going to try and do it in a far more COVID-safe way than how I would normally explain it, so hopefully it's still really clear, okay? But some of the language, if you hang around here for a little bit, some of the language that you're going to hear me use a lot, and that you're going to hear some of the others use a lot as well, is this language of being centred on Jesus of having Jesus at the centre and moving towards him. And so where that comes from is this idea that there's two kind of different ways of understanding, traditional ways of understanding Christianity, what Christianity means. Uh, And the first way is what we call a box or a bounded set, a bounded set way of understanding Jesus. And what that basically means in the box set is that you're either in the box or outside it. Okay, so this square here, which rectangle here is a box, you're either inside the box or you're outside it. If you're one or the other people, you're either in or you're out. You might have prayed in prayer or you might have been baptized or you have whatever reason particular or the particular marker of community that the, that particular church or denomination believes, you're either in or you're out. Okay? There's a definite line between those who are in Christ and those who aren't. And there's some people that because of their behavior or their lifestyle or their whatever their case might be, they're just outside the box and they can never get in. And there's something fundamentally changed about who they are, but it's never going to happen. So they're always going to be outside the box. But me, if I'm inside the box, if I've prayed a prayer or I've the lifestyle or done whatever is the thing that I'm supposed to do in that particular generation, I'm sweet. I must feel. It doesn't really matter what happens next. I mean, that's for you guys outside the box. Thank you. 
you that. I know some of you haven't heard me talk about it that way before, but I wanted to just um, reintroduce that because I want you to have that understanding of faith in your mind as we go through this passage. Because what we're going to discover together tonight is that Joseph starts off this story with a totally boxed understanding of faith. That's where he's at and something's going to happen to explode his box. So the story begins by saying, This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, 
but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Yep, we know that. But here's the next thing that's really interesting to me. The passage says this, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, because he was faithful to the law, um, another version says, because he was a righteous man, okay, so because he's faithful to the law, because he's a righteous man, and, didn't want to, and yet didn't want to expose Mary to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So let's just stop there for a second and understand. According to the Bible, God is at this moment doing something unprecedented in history, right? Like the whole Virgin Mary having a baby boy thing, that's kind of important to Christianity, yeah? Slightly important story. Jesus being born, coming into the world. But at this point in the story, Joseph believes that the righteous thing to do, the thing that is most faithful to the Lord to do, is to divorce Mary and have nothing to do with her. Because that's what his box thinking has taught him to do. Um, So, uh, just another little bit of background information that some of you might know. Um, The kind of Jewish um, type of marriage that they practiced at the time is a two-stage marriage. It it still happens in some cultures today. Um, But Jewish marriage customs at the time were a two-stage process. So stage one was um, the betrothal uh, process or what we might call engagement. Um, And what happened in the engagement or the betrothal stage is that the couple actually comes together and they exchange vows at that point of time, at the betrothal stage. So they exchange vows that they're going to live together, they're going to be husband and wife, that they're going to commit their lives to one another. But then the bride goes back to living with mum and dad while the groom goes to prepare a place for her, to build a house for them and to make somewhere that they can live together. And so stage two of the betrothal is that the groom comes back to the bride, takes her from her parents' house to live at his house with him. Um, If you're familiar with some of Jesus' parables, that should be ringing bells for you actually. You know when Jesus goes, I go to prepare a place for you? He's actually referring back to his practice. But what we need to understand is at this point in the story, Joseph is effectively already married to Mary in that he has made vows to her. He has committed to her that he is going to be her husband. And what he's doing right now is literally building their house, the home that they're going to live in together and raise their kids together. So this is not just like a fickle kind of like they've had a few dates and thought that it could be a good thing to think more about this. They are dead set committed to one another. Um... And so in that situation, when Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant and he knows that it's not his, he thinks, what does the law require? What is the right thing for a pious Jewish man to do that is going to please God, that is going to honour the community? I need to divorce Mary. But because he's a good guy, he kind of sprinkles a little bit of mercy on top and he decides that he's going to do it quietly. He's not going to expose her to public disgrace. Um, and so then it goes, it, uh, it goes forward and it says, um, after he considered this, an angel of the Lord came to him and says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived of her in her is of the Holy Spirit. And this is the mind-blowing thing. Jesus looks at what Mary's situation is. So Joseph looks at it. And he believes that the only righteous thing to do, the only God-honoring thing to do, is to divorce Mary because it cannot possibly be from God. There can't be anything holy or good or beautiful about the fact 
that this supposedly virgin woman that he's supposed to be married to, that's supposed to be wearing, bearing his kids one day and bearing his name and carrying his line, this woman is pregnant and he hasn't slept with her, so there can't possibly be anything holy about that, except that Joseph gets told by this messenger of God, what's happening with Mary? That is the work of the Spirit of God. And we have so much over-familiarity with this, this story because we all sing away in a manger and think it's so lovely when the kids sing that, right? That we can't, I think there's a, too much distance for us to understand how mind-blowing that is to Joseph. You see, Joseph, he was a righteous guy and he took his religion really, really seriously. And so as a guy, when he learns that Mary's pregnant, he is shaken. He is so shook up. And as a pious man, a righteous man, he looks at what the laws required and then he decides that he's going to have uh, add some mercy for that because it wouldn't do for a guy like Joseph who wants to please God to marry a girl like Mary who obviously is not so concerned about her purity right? obviously that's clear right and Joseph he wants a godly home and he wants godly kids and so he needs to break it off with Mary because she can't possibly be a godly person but he doesn't want to embarrass Mary right he doesn't want to ruin her life so he decides he's going to do it quietly um, so he's thinking maybe I'll just change my, my relationship status on Facebook right just do something quiet um, and he's like oh maybe I shouldn't do it on Facebook that could go viral we don't want this story to go viral Fewer people that know about this old Jesus thing is the better. Um, maybe he'll private message Mary. So, ah, no, maybe, maybe I should actually have a face-to-face -face conversation with Mary to break up with her. So this is a big deal. He's actually going to have a conversation with her. And then in the midst of all of that, an angel steps in and speaks to Joseph and messes everything up. Because here's the first thing that this story teaches us. Sometimes... It is not enough to know the rules. Now, uh, I was brought up in a church, um, some of you guys know, some of you guys know that I was brought up in the Salvation Army, which is a church that was founded, um, and the whole structure is kind of modeled on the military. So it's big on rules and structure and all these kind of things. Uh, and when I was a kid, um, the Salvation Army was good at a couple of things. It was genuinely good at caring for the marginalized and the oppressed and poor people in society. It was really good on but what it was also really, really good at with a kid like me is teaching you the rules. Uh, and in fact, when I was seven years old, I became a junior soldier in the Salvation Army and I signed a pledge that I would never, ever drink or smoke uh, or take harmful drugs. Seven years old, I committed that for my whole life I would abstain from alcohol, tobacco and harmful drugs. It's going really well. Um, <laughs> When I was 16, I became a senior soldier and I, and I recommitted to that, to keeping all these promises and to keeping all these pledges. And I was so serious. I actually wanted to be an officer or a pastor in the Salvation Army and I was dead set on it. I did not touch a drop of alcohol. Just did not do it. Because I was so serious. I wanted to please God. And in my understanding, in order to please God and be faithful to God and to fulfill the calling to ministry that I thought was on my life, I had to keep these rules. Um, now, spoiler alert, I left the Salvos uh, in my, I think when I was about 19 or 20. Um, and a few years after that, I, I broke a couple of those rules. 
Uh, it's possible that some of you have seen me break those rules and have a drink or two. Um, and I have to confess to you that it's possible that I've also smoked a couple of clove cigarettes in my life. Um, and a couple of cigars as well, much to Bronte's disgust that has happened. Uh, so keeping those, keeping those rules has not gone incredibly well for me. Um, I've done pretty well with the drugs thing, unless you tell it when I was run over by a car, and then I was on a lot of drugs actually, but they were medically administered. Um, but my understanding when I was younger was that pleasing God meant keeping the rules. And yet sometimes it's not enough to know the rules. Sometimes it's not enough for me to make sure that I am right and that I am secure within my box and that I am keeping rules so my salvation is safe and I'm all good. And I pray for the terrible people that are outside of my box that I'm okay because I'm in the box keeping my rules. What we actually discover as the story unfolds is that that is not enough. You see, to Joseph's mind, Mary's pregnancy signals to him that she is outside of the box. She has crossed the line. And it is not possible that God could be at the center of her life. It is not possible that she could be pleasing God. She was outside of the box. And so for Joseph, since he wants to stay in the box, he wants to be in relationship with God, he has to cut off Mary. The relationship has to go. And logically, in the rules and the culture that Joseph had been taught, that made sense, right? And yet, as we read the story, what we find is that Mary's life was 100% on track. While everyone around her, in her village, in her society, in her family, is pointing at her and calling her a sinner and saying that she's sexually impure and she can't possibly have God at the centre of her life, Mary is actually the most God-focused person in this story. She's the one that's on track. But everyone thinks she's outside of the box. But it's Mary that is devoted to God. It's Mary that's looking to God. It's Mary that's even willing to sacrifice her name and her reputation. If that is what it takes to do the thing that God is calling her to do, to authentically live the calling that God has placed upon her life. And strangely, it's Joseph who thinks he's got everything pinned down so clearly and so well. It's Joseph who has thought so hard about what are the rules for my life that I have to follow. It's Joseph that God has to visit and reorient towards the truth of God. Because in this situation, simply applying the rule would completely misunderstand the purpose of God in this situation, would completely misunderstand what God was doing, would completely misunderstand that the very impurity of Mary is when God is revealing himself. And so Joseph has a visit from an angel uh, who explains that he needs to stick with Mary and marry her, marry her and bring up the Son of God as his boy. And that's what he does. And that is so far outside of the box, which is difficult to explain. Um, and we need to realize that. We need to realize that this whole situation is completely outside of the box. And some of you might be sitting there going, yes, yes, Karen, when someone who is a virgin uh, becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit, that is unusual. I'm so glad that you pointed this out to me. Well, that's what I'm here for. You are so welcome. 
<laughs> but when I say this situation is outside the box, I'm not talking about the whole immaculate conception thing, although that was obviously unprecedented and huge and unrepeated and that's an interesting thing. I mean what's out of the box is what God has asked of Mary and Joseph in this situation. Because to anyone looking at them, to anyone with a boxed-in mentality, these two people are way out of line. Yeah? Anyone who exists in the box and has the box as their framework are looking at Mary and Joseph thinking they are so far out of God's will, they are so far out of line, it's not funny. And yet, in the scheme of things, in the context of what God is doing at this point in history, It's Mary and Joseph that are the two people that are most focused on Christ, that are centered on Jesus, that are centered on God's will and God's purpose and walking towards God. But anyone who has a legalistic frame of mind would have missed that completely. That what God is doing is beautiful. It's unprecedented. It's not what I expected. It's not what I was taught to expect. It's not what I was taught to call pure. But God is doing it, and it's beautiful. So for Joseph in this story, being in solidarity with Jesus and making room for Jesus, quite literally making room for Jesus in his life, meant not only knowing and applying the rules, right? Which is what a lot of us were taught to do. For Joseph... Being in solidarity with Jesus and making room for Jesus and living for God actually meant listening responsively to the Holy Spirit. It meant taking seriously the message of God to him. Now for some of you, for some of us, we were brought up in churches that as soon as you're hearing this, it's like, danger, danger, Will Robinson. Like this is, no, you just, you told the rules, you told the principles, you told the framework, you told what to believe and how to believe it, and don't you dare step outside of that box. This whole listening to the Holy Spirit thing and responding to the voice of God, that's for the out there Pentecostals. Spoiler alert, I was ordained Pentecostal pastor. Uh, that's for, like, that's not for us that understand the framework. That's wrong. Unless you read the Bible. And you find the number of times, and it's not even new to the New Testament people, the number of times that the Spirit of God has to speak to someone through angels or prophets or through the Word and making it alive in a new way and goes, you're reading it wrong, people. You thought that it was so clear, but you are so far off the track, it is ridiculous. You know, last week I preached in another church on Acts chapter 10. Uh, from like 9 to the end of the chapter. And that's the story where Peter, who's like one of Jesus' homies, right? Actually, homies in a different way you might be thinking about it. Uh, One of Jesus' crew um, has this vision. He's praying one day and he has this vision of a sheep coming down from heaven and there's like pigs and reptiles and crocodiles and all these different animals on the sheep um, that very, very clearly in the Old Testament law are unclean and no Jewish person should ever eat them, yeah? Super clean, Uh, super clean. And so this sheep comes down from heaven and it's covered in all of these unclean things. And God says to Peter in a dream, the spirit says to Peter, Peter, get up, kill and eat. Like, okay, Peter, it's barbecue time. You know, grab the pork and whack it on the barbie, you know? 
Um, get some shrimp on your fork. All of these things are being said to Peter, like get up, kill, eat, go for it. And Peter is horrified because Peter understands the rules. He knows his box incredibly clearly. This guy has spent serious one-on-one time with Jesus. But he still thinks the box has to determine the way that he lives his life, right? And so Peter's like, no, Lord, I would never do that. And there's this strong rebuke that happens when the Spirit says to him, or Jesus in the dream, um, says to Peter, don't you call anything unclean that I have called clean. And we're told in that story that this happens three times so that it's super clear to Peter. And immediately after he's had this dream, right, these guys knock on the door. Um, and um, Peter gets told, he's still like having his personal devotions, I guess, with, with Jesus. And uh, the Spirit says to Peter, hey, some guys knocking on the door. I don't want you to ask. Just go with them. Just do what they say. So Peter goes downstairs. Um, the, his friends have just opened the door to these guys. And Peter goes, hey, I think you're looking for me. And they're like, are you Simon that's called Peter? He's like, that would be me. And they're like, hey, we've come from Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion. Stop, stop, stop. Roman century. That is like as unclean as you can get in the first century world. Okay, Romans are the bad guys in this story. They are terrible. Plus, they eat a whole bunch of things and wear a whole bunch of things that are totally unclean. So for Peter, as a good Jewish guy, it is absolutely 100% against the law for Peter to even let them in his house. And it would be absolutely fake suicide for him to go into their house. But the Spirit has just said to Peter two things. Don't you dare call unclean what I've called clean. And when you get those guys knocking on your door, you go with them. And so Peter, I just cannot imagine how his heart is beating. Because he's about to do something that is against everything he has ever been taught. And he goes with these guys to Cornelius' house. In fact, they stay overnight where Peter's staying first and then the next day he travels with them and he goes into Cornelius' house, yeah? And he goes into this unclean place. And he introduces himself when they say, hey, we're all ready for you. We want to hear your sermon. Like, we want to know about Jesus. Teach us about Jesus. We're hungry for Jesus. And this is how Peter starts his sermon, right, in Acts chapter 10. You know that it is against the law for a clean Jewish person like me to eat or drink with you or to be in your home. Excellent. I want to know Jesus. Altar call? Yes, yes. That's how he starts, right? But then he says to them, but the Lord has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. And do you know if you read that, I think it's in uh, Acts 10.28, that particular verse, if you read it, Peter puts no qualifier on that at all. Peter says, the Lord has told me I should not call any person impure or unclean. And so then he starts his like standard sermon, his little bridge to life sermon with three steps to following Jesus. Does not even get through his sermon brilliance before the Holy Spirit moves on these people and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they start speaking in tongues and all of the other things that sound crazy and weird. But what's significant for Peter is he's going, oh my gosh, I'm seeing God do something in the lives of these people that God did in me. And so I can't call that unclean when I believe that it was God that was acting in my life. 
And so Pete, his whole head has been exploded because God has said to him, the rules that you've been taught are not the way that I ever intended things to be. You've totally misunderstood what I've been telling you. And I'm telling you now, don't call unclean what I've declared clean. Don't you dare call any person impure. And so Peter sees God moving amongst these people. uh, And he ends up baptizing them. And then you find uh, in the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 11, and then again in Acts chapter 15, Peter is actually called out on that by other people that are still convinced that the box has to define following Jesus. And because of Peter's experience, his encounter on the rooftop with the dream, and his encounter with Cornelius' household, he actually challenges the entire church that we have to give up our box thinking and be centered on Jesus. And that in fact these people that we thought were excluded and outside are welcome in the very middle of the kingdom of God. Just like it said in Isaiah 58, all these people that you thought were excluded and outside, (laughs) when the kingdom comes, they're going to be not just welcome in the temple, but ministering at the temple. I don't know how you guys feel, like it was a big deal for me the first time as an out gay woman preaching in a church. It was a big deal for me. I don't know how it feels leading worship. It's a big deal. When you suddenly discover that you're allowed to come into the light and be who you are and, and Jesus is not kicking you out of the box, that's a big deal. Well, for Joseph in this story, for him to take seriously the message of God to him, he has to walk in a totally counterintuitive, countercultural way, where everything is saying according to the rules, according to purity, according to the law, you have to divorce Mary, you have to have nothing to do with her because she's unclean. The Spirit is saying, no, Joseph, you need to actually align your life with this woman and walk with her because this thing that everyone's telling you is unclean, is the very center of what God is doing right now. It's literally carrying the presence of God. And so it wasn't about self-righteously applying the rules. It was about bringing God's salvation to others by cooperating with what God is doing right now in this moment, even when other people want to label it as unclean. And so Joseph was called to live in solidarity with Mary, the outcast who, as it turns out, is right at the centre of God's will. And in doing that, Joseph finds himself in solidarity with Jesus as well. And so instead of protecting his reputation and his line, Joseph takes in Mary and he gives her a home and a family. Because that's what holiness looks like. That's what holiness looks like for Joseph walking towards the very thing that everyone told him he should run from. That's what it meant to be centered on God. Holiness meant doing what honored God and honored Mary, even in the face of his religious principles and the clear teaching of the law. Holiness meant having the courage to walk towards Mary when everyone said he should run away from her. Holiness meant nurturing the life of God and bringing mercy and grace. Holiness meant bringing salvation to other people. That is how Joseph stood in solidarity with Jesus, 
by standing with a maligned and excluded partner. That's what holiness looked like for Joseph. So as we conclude kind of the Advent journey this week and, and celebrate Christmas on Friday, I want us to think about how we are standing in solidarity with Jesus in our own lives. How are we preparing to proclaim God's salvation in our community? So how do you understand holiness? Sometimes when we read the Old Testament, it's easy to get the idea that holiness is all about rule-making and rule-keeping, right? And it's about exclusion and separation. That holiness is about being a person that doesn't do bad things or hang out with bad people, the wrong kind of people. But if that's what we think, then we have completely missed the point. Because holiness in the Old Testament, and still today, is actually about creating a community of people that together demonstrate the life of God, that together demonstrate the character of God. People who through their lives and their love and their faithfulness and their loyalty and their commitment and their mercy and their grace, through all of that, demonstrate what God is like. That's what holiness is. This is what it means to live in the image of God. Like, you think about it. Um, in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, quoting the Old Testament, we are told to be holy as God is holy, right? What is the greatest expression of God's holiness, of God's revelation? Well, as a Christian, I believe it's the incarnation of Jesus. If Jesus teaches us what holiness is, then holiness cannot possibly be about running away from bad people and bad things. Because Jesus came to dwell with us. And Jesus is the one that we continually see walking towards all those who are excluded and marginalized in the community. And he's absolutely ripped for it all the time. He's criticized for the people that he hung out with and for the people that he declared clean and forgiven and holy. Why? Because box thinking says the rules are clear, keep the rules. And Jesus comes and says, it's not about keeping the rules, it's about imitating the character of God. And that's about walking towards people, not away from them. See, we thought that holiness was about keeping so far away from the wrong people and the wrong things that I wouldn't catch it. Yeah? But Jesus comes and says, holiness means walking towards other people, not the fear that I'm going to catch their sins or anything else. It's about how we treat other people. It's about how we treat ourselves. 
And holiness, true holiness, it moves us towards God and towards people because it's not one or the other. And holiness, it requires dialogue between God by his spirit and his word. It's listening to what she's saying. It's not just thinking that we've got a set of principles or rules that will do us right for all time. That has never been the case. It wasn't the case at any point in scripture. I could give you a hundred stories. But God goes, no, no, time. You've done it again. Those are not the rules. They might be your rules. They're not mine. This is me approaching you again because I am God who is Emmanuel. God with us. Not God separated from us to keep keep herself clean. God with us. The God who comes to us. I cannot live a holy life with a rule book and a measuring stick. And that means most of the time That means getting out of our box thinking and centering our lives on Jesus and making room in our lives for other people. People that our rules taught us to call unclean. You know what? For some of us, it's meant kind of making room for ourselves. Learning to call ourselves clean because that's what Jesus calls us. It means listening to the Holy Spirit and asking the question, how can I right now demonstrate the love of salvation of God? It means thinking about my choices and their impact. It is possible to look to other people as if you are so safely in the middle of your Christian box and yet be moving away from Jesus. Because we haven't understood what holiness is. And we haven't understood the message of the gospel. That's what happened to a bunch of people in the Bible when uh, they tried to enforce the rules of the Sabbath, right, the day of rest, without actually caring about what would happen if people got hurt or went hungry or were sick. They're like, no, this is the box. I can't touch you if you're broken. I can't touch you if you're hurting. I can't touch you if you're sick. I can't give you food if you're hungry because it's the Sabbath and I've got to rest. And what does Jesus do? He breaks the rules to walk towards people to love and to heal them. You see, centered thinking is totally different. It asks that question, am I moving towards Jesus or away from him? Am I helping other people to move towards Jesus or away from him? Box thinking keeps the church pure by keeping messy people out. Box thinking judges people outside of the church while winking at sin within the church. Now, centered thinking, it doesn't ignore sin. Not at all. But I understand that sin is not actually defined by trying to keep a set of rules that we've made up or that we thought were for all time. But sin is missing the mark of God's perfect character by breaking community, by abusing other people, by using others to, for, for our own selfish ends. And therefore, centered thinking, understanding holiness is relational, 
as moving towards people with love and grace, it's actually a higher standard, not a lower standard, because it makes me accountable. The other thing about centered thinking is that it proclaims the welcome of God and the solidarity of Jesus with the world. Because centered thinking says, come, all who are hungry, and eat the bread of life. Come, all who are thirsty, and drink deeply of the well of life. Come, and we will walk towards Jesus together. We will do this together. And so this Christmas, the question that I have for you is, is your life centered on Jesus? Or are you still thinking about yourselves and other people in a way that does not match up to the message of Jesus? What is happening in you is conceived of the Holy Spirit. What is happening in you, Elkie, is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Rob, what God is doing in your life is the work of God's Spirit. Beth, what God is doing in your life is the work of God's Spirit. Let it blow your mind. Don't call unclean what God is called clean. And understand that today, Jesus is the one that is moving towards you, not away from you. Because he wants to teach you grace, first for yourself, and then for other people. Because the other thing about holiness, the way that Jesus lives it, is that it leads to life and to flourishing. So this Christmas, I pray that you would be centered on Jesus and that you would be willing to recognize the things that Jesus is doing and see the beauty of the work of the Spirit in them. Amen? I preach for a really long time. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give us a moment to just sit with that and think about it. As we listen to a beautiful song that Steph and uh, I was going to say Steph and Lance, <laughs> Steph and Beth are going to sing for us. Thank you.
future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor your sexuality, or your children's sexuality, neither your past of addiction, or the brokenness of your life, or anything else in all of creation, will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.